Hello listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. Today we have a guest on the podcast that has been part of one of the most exciting projects in European football, an unheard of club that made waves for their free-flowing attacking and possession-based style, going head-to-head with some of the biggest names in Europe, such as Arsenal and AS Roma, while also handing Jose Mourinho the largest defeat of his illustrious managerial career. But a glimpse rise has been gargantuan, not only in Norway, but on the continent too, having produced players like Jean-Pierre Hauge, Eric Boutheim and Patrick Berg, and selling them to bigger clubs throughout Europe, including AC Milan and Lyon. Under the guidance of the tactically astute Ketel Knudsen, Budaglimt have become everyone's Scandinavian sweethearts and are looking to steam ahead by competing in Europe as well as at the top of the Elitserien. We speak to a man who has been involved in the success of the 2020 and 2021 Norwegian champions, the club's head of physical performance, Michael Brown. Michael formerly worked with Hull City and Notts County before moving to Norway to become part of the ever-growing project under Knudsen, and today he has joined me to tell a story and talk about the successes of our Scandinavian darlings, Budaglimt. Before we chat to Michael, the TFA World Cup preview magazine is out now. For just €5.99, you can get access to the tactics of every single national team being represented at the coveted international tournament. It's certainly worth the money, and I've even written about two of the countries in the magazine myself, which you can check out. On top of this, we produced our World Cup preview podcast last week, where I spoke to some of the other analysts who contributed to the magazine to help break down the tactics of each team, their squads, and their chances of getting far in the competition. Also, leave us a five-star rating on the audio platform of your choice. It really helps us grow and is greatly appreciated as we look to bring you the best quality football content on the market. So now, without further ado, let's go speak to Buddha Glimpse Head of Physical Performance, Michael Brown. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to chatting. I was really excited to get you on today because I... We've had so many different roles on the podcast in terms of we've had managers and coaches, analysts, sporting directors. But I wanted to get someone of, I mean, from in in your role of a sports physiotherapist or a head of performance. I'm really looking forward to getting someone like that on. I want to try and get as many roles as I can on to kind of see the different functions within football. That's what I find interesting, anyway. But you, you initially started out professionally, I think, with Scarborough in rugby, if that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So whilst I was, I originally studied a uh, degree in sports rehab. Mm-hmm. So whilst I was doing that, after I finished, I worked at Scarborough Rugby Club for, I think I did four or five seasons there as a physio. So anyone who knows amateur rugby will know that it's just you and a bag, if if you're lucky. So, uh, but that that was really good. I, I grew up in Scarborough, I spent the latter part of my teens in Scarborough. So I, I knew a lot of the lads there. Mm. Uh, so it was really good. I got a buy-in from them on what I was doing, and it kind of gave me an opportunity to put into practice what I'd learned from quite an early stage. So during that period, I was going to university still to do my master's um, and then transfer over to be a, a full physio. So it was a good opportunity to do that whilst whilst working. So it was perfect. And why the jump then to football? How did that come about? Uh, I've always been a football man. Mm-hmm. That's sort of where, where my passion's been. After I finished uh, my master's as a physio, I was actually lucky enough to get a job at Castleford Tigers. So I stayed in rugby professionally for a couple of years. Um, so I worked there. Yeah, I did two and a half, three seasons there under some great uh, tutelage. The head physio there was uh, Matt Crowther, who was the England Rugby League physio. So mm-hmm. that was perfect. And as a football man, it, it put me out of my comfort zone a little bit. 
it was it was a sport I didn't I grew up in Liverpool so the only option was football or football so I didn't I didn't really know too much about rugby but working in a sport which is new to me new culture new way of treating players new way of working with players obviously the the gym focus in rugby is a lot different mm-hmm. to in football so that's something that really caught my interest so that was fantastic but then I was actually living in Hull at the time and the job came up at Hull City to go in as the uh, head academy physio. Well, you went to Union Hall, didn't you? I went to Union Hall yeah. originally. Then I did my master's in uh, Teesside, so up mm. in Middlesbrough. Um, and then I was back living in Hull because of my wife's work. And then it just fell into place. The job came yeah. available there. So that was a perfect shift across into into football. So before we get into your time at Hull, because I have some questions I wanted to ask you, but you obviously you went to university in Hull and then you had the master's thing in Teesside University. Was was you know was that always something you wanted to do? Was go into sport rehabilitation or was it you know where did you first get the inkling that oh I want to do that? Yeah, instead of you know with some people when you're young, you know you what do you want to do when you're old? And you're like oh, I want to be I want to play football. When did you be, say I want to be a sports physio? Yeah, so it was something that. It kind of there was always an interest there. I, I played myself. I played at semi-professional level and was always better without the ball than with it. So I was always interested more within that sort of the physical side of the game. Um, I got compared a lot to being a headless chicken and just the amount of running I was doing. <laughs> that that was my game. I just ran and and I loved running. So that's what I brought. I also got a lot of injuries. Um, from a personal note, my family. Uh, I come from a quite a medical family. I have nurses and paramedics and doctors within the family. So it's it's something that I was always sort of encouraged and exposed to a more medical and like a, a performance aspect of the sport rather than just thinking about the sport itself. So mm. although it was every boy's dream to become a footballer, it was kind of in there somewhere that it always wanted me to go into it if I wasn't good enough to that sort of performance side and the medical side of things. How did you deal with those injuries yourself then when you were young? Because I can't speak from experience, obviously. I can only speak speak from experience of being a coach and seeing players get injured. I've seen some horrific injuries and players, I mean, it just distraught because they know that mm-hmm. you could be out for a year or two. And I mean, I, I, for a kid, I'm sure that's really tough to deal with. So how did you deal with that personally before we kind of move into how you de- deal with it as a physio when you're dealing with other people? Yeah. It, I had, for my, for personally, I didn't really have too many, like there was no like ACLs or really bad injuries, but there just seemed to be a lot of little niggles that were preventing me training full or missing games or doing whatever. Um, I do have a a sort of on, ongoing issue from, from when I was young in terms of a, a heart issue, which prevented me really pushing on from a, as 13 I was told I had to stop playing for a couple of years just to sort of let everything catch up as it were but I always just had a good support network that was the best thing for me my family were always around and although it wasn't yeah you're injured but it's you get on with it and you do other mm. stuff there was there was sort of no opportunity to feel down about it in our house it was just now you you get on with it and you find something else that you can do and that was it so it was just that mindset instilled from the family. So it was something that came, kind of came naturally. Do you think then that those experiences have helped you later in life when someone comes to you and they are injured? Have you been able to kind of deal with it better because you understand it better in their shoes? 
Yeah, I think so. But I, I think as you can, a lot of people will be able to explain if they've played the game as well from a coaching point of view. You just understand a little bit more. So mm-hmm. the fact that, that I've played a little bit and been around it, you understand the emotions that the boys are going through at any time. And an injury is just one of them times that boys are feeling emotions. It's the same as when there's a, a big game or a big sort of stress on the players. It, you can understand what they're going through. So I think that just alters how you treat them and how you approach the situation. You were the, was it the academy physio, the head of academy physio as well with Hull City? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. But this is what I was alluding to as well, the, the previous line of questioning. There's such a, a damning mental element to the recovery of young players because at that age, again, I can't speak from experience, but I can speak of how how I know how difficult it is to break into professional football. And when you're at that age, an injury, could that's the kill, that could be the killer. That could be the killer of your career. You could be, you know, you've released or it's so, so difficult. You see young players at top clubs and they've been great players and they get this injury and then all of a sudden they're not returning until they're 22, 23. And then that's that top clubs. That's usually kind of a, a cutoff point. So, you know, how, how do you, how do you help players deal with that mentally? Or how difficult it even is that for you to, to see happen mentally? Yeah, it's, it's difficult because you can see even when you get into the professional game, you see players going out of contract and you think a bad injury and, and that's them mm. finished or they're not moving on to the club that they wanted to. So the way I deal with injuries sort of regardless of, of anything is try and if we know they're out for a long time, try and incorporate everybody into that player's plan. So I speak with coaches along with the player and say, how do, how do you see this player coming back fit? What can we improve on in this year or 18 months that we have out, do you want him to become stronger? Do you want him to become faster? So from day one, we're already getting that plan in terms of the player's head. So he's then thinking, okay, this this is a plan, not just from the physios, not just from the physical staff, but from the coach as to how I can get back into the team. Mm-hmm. So I think that just helps motivate them. Obviously, if you just have a player and I'm going, okay, I think you need to do this as a physical staff or physio, we're at least cool people at the club. So if you can get a coach on board who's saying, this is what, how I can see you improving your game, you now have a little bit of time away from the club or away from the training with the team. And would you offer insight into that then? Because obviously coaches wouldn't have the experience that you'd have, you know. So would you offer your insight then and say, well, I think we should do this. And then maybe if they disagree or they go, okay, yeah, go with it. Yeah, so it's it's just a two or three-way or four-way conversation. So we just sit in the room and we discuss it. So we have a little bit of a chat first, first the staff and say, okay, this player is going to be out for this long. Then we expect him to be back here. This is what we think we can work on. What do, get, what do you guys think? And if they say, oh, no, we want him to do maybe come back leaner or come back stronger, just simple stuff, especially as a young player. In Hull, we, we had a couple of injuries where we had, a, I remember one vividly, a, a centre-back who was a really good player, but quite a, a skinny boy. So the, the criticism levelled at him was always that he wasn't physical enough. So then he picked up quite a bad knee injury and... We were able to work with him. We we had six months where we were building him up and he came back and he was the physically best that the team had at the time. He uh, then went on and now he, he's playing quite a high level over in the States. So, okay, he didn't make it at Hull City, but he's made it somewhere else. So that's something that yeah. we're quite proud about. That he's just being able to use them opportunities to enhance what that player is capable of doing when he returns from injury. Have you found that players are very open to receiving your advice or you know going through these plans to grow more physically or to become quicker, et cetera, are they very open or do you, is there ever resistance of a player that's, 
not really arsed, I suppose, is a very useful. Yeah, you, you always get resistance in, in anything. There's always players who, who take a little bit more persuading. Um, but I, sometimes I think they're the, the more fun player to work with. Because, yeah. uh, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts from um, Steve Tashian with the US and soccer team. And he, he sums it up perfectly. Because what he says is you have to be a businessman and you have to be a salesman. You have to sell your pitch. And I think that's a, a really good way of doing it. So if you have a player who just goes, yes, yeah, no problem, I'll run as fast as you want me to, then that's easy. But if you actually then have to challenge yourself when you get a bit of resistance to give evidence, to show what, what you want to do and show why this is going to help the player, that's ultimately more rewarding for, for me as a clinician and also for that player that you can then see that uh, buy and develop over time and then mm-hmm. you can see them sort of, the light bulb comes on and goes, oh yeah, that that is a, that's a good thing and I'm pleased that I've tried that and yeah. that's the ones that I really like and now in the staff that we have, they're the ones that I often try and take a lead on throughout the rest of the staff because they're the ones I, I feel I can challenge the best and we can really push them in the right direction. How fulfilling is it then to see the you know, a plan come off and a player comes back and he's better than ever or he's stronger or he's quicker, or, you know, just a better player all round and he's fully fit. How fulfilling is that for you? Or do you, or maybe it's not, but you know, because it's just your job or, you know. Yeah, it's, it's nice. You, you, I think anyone who works closely with, let's say someone who's had an ACL, if they don't feel a little bit of pride when that player comes on or scores his first goal when he's back, I think you, you could be in the wrong game. I think it's a, it's a proud moment when you get someone back from them sort of long-term injuries. It's, it's, I think it's human nature. You spend every day with that guy for a year. So you want him to do well and you want him to get back quick. So mm. there is that element of pride. It's then just a case of, yeah, you get proud for one game and then you get back. It's just doing your job again. And yeah. you just get that guy and the rest of the team ready for the next match. I always remember, I think it was 2015 or 2016, Jack Wilshire, who, of course, was notoriously injury-prone throughout his career, and unfortunately is, is, is retired now. But he came on against, I think it was at the end of the season, and he scored for us. It was a great goal, but he ran over to the physios and he hugged them. And he was really, it was really emotional. And that, that, that made me think, you know, he's obviously worked really closely with these guys, you know, for the last year, trying to do everything he can to get fit. So how important is it then? Because I actually... Only really speaking to you now, I realise how important is it to be personable as a physio or a head of performance because you have to work with people all the time and you need to, you know, is it important to build relationships with the, the players? For me, that that's the most important. I think when you're a physio, if you're working in the NHS or any setting, you, you see a, a patient once every two weeks or a week or half an hour, you just get the job done. I think it's it's more important when you're not treating the players here we have some players who they never get treatments, they never come in, they never want for anything. But we still have to get to know that player. Yeah. So if he is injured, we have to understand what what makes him tick, how we can then get him back. So being a, a personality within the group, being a positive energy, being a good for the culture, for me, it's, it's a massive part of what we do. If you think we have, here at Glimp, we have 30 players and two injured. Mm-hmm. So if your focus is on just them two and not the rest of the group, you're then going to find yourself you're not a not too much to do, yeah. Uh, and b you're not involved. So it's better to be involved in the group, be talking to the players, and become a real energy for everyone you can do, and offer as much advice and as much support through for everyone. So I think it's it's a massive part of the role. How does a plan change then in terms of when a player is coming back from injury and you need to get them fit? 
maybe something's not quite working, do you change it often or would you always be adamant to stick to the original plan that you've laid out for them to get back to fitness? No, yeah, you have to be flexible. That's the way we look at it in, in everything. Um, whether that's, uh, you say the player's going to be back in four weeks and say after two weeks, another player in his position gets injured. I think you, you have to have them conversations with coaches and you, you have to be open to discussing a risk. Of course, it, many times you go, look, it's too risky. We can't take that risk. But you ha- I think you have to be willing to discuss it. Too many times I, I see professionals who are they're rigid. They said, this is what we're doing and this is the plan. And it creates tension amongst the coaching staff. It creates tension amongst the players because everybody wants to be on the pitch. Yeah. And I think our job is is to support that. That's a, a term that it's not so popular and it's not a very sexy term. But to be, a, I think we're a support team. So that's medical, physical, nutrition. We're just there to support. We're there to give advice and we're there to help the players and the staff as much as we can do. It's not about us. No one pays to come and see me take a warm-up, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> They're good warm-ups. They should do. But uh, <laughs> no, nobody does. So it's just about what can we do and how can we actually help them. So if there's a conversation, it happens all the time here in my current role where the manager says, I, you said... He's out for a couple more weeks, but can we talk about this? And as long as there's open dialogue and everybody understands what the risk is and whether it's too risky or whether it's, yeah, okay, we, we can try it and let's see how we get on. But as long as there's that open dialogue, you have to be flexible. Is that frustrating, though, for you? Or not? maybe that's a, a poor choice of words. Do you feel pressure, then? It's probably a better way to put that in terms of getting a player back fit because ultimately if you're, if you're in a title race which you I mean Bodeglimp have been for the last couple of seasons or it doesn't matter I mean you could be in a, if you're a team that are at a relegation battle you your best players are injured and you need them back fit and the coach comes to you and says we need them back by this time and you do you, do you feel that pressure then? Yeah there's, there's pressure there's pressure in, in every day mm-hmm. and it's, it's not just within injuries but it's when you know that for example there's an 11 v 11 session but you know, players could maybe do with being modified. You know, when you go to that coaching office, you're gonna you're gonna meet some resistance. Um, and I, for me, again, that's part of it. That's part of the job. That's part of a elite sport. It means that it, it means something. Um, I think you have to be have your own way of dealing with it, because you certainly I've moved away from the physio a little bit. But the physios are often the grim reaper. They're the ones who are telling the bad news that they're out for a long time and. <laughs> you're you're just always walking in and it's, it's giving that news and it, that's just part and parcel of it. Um, in terms of that pressure and if it's frustrating, for me it's it's not frustrating. I think if you if you take a risk and you explain the risk to the coach. So the way I like to say it is that I'm a policeman and and he's a judge. All I can do is give him evidence. If he decides, ah oh, no, I've spoken to the player. The player's happy. We're going to play it. Okay, if that player comes off after 15 minutes and he's out for the rest of the season, it's the coach and the team who are going to miss out mm. in, in a way of thinking about it. For me, I just go back to doing my job and, and we get that player back fit as quick as we can do. So it's you don't take anything personal. They, yeah. I know that if they do in stuff like that, it's, it is what it is and it's, it's because of the pressure we're under. And you surely, get on with surely it. though, not to push you into a, a, an answer you don't want to give but surely there's times where and you don't again I, I'm not looking for examples I'm just you know but surely there's there's times when that's happened and you've been trying to, you've been pulling your hair or going he's not ready you're 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 gonna do more damage you know mm. yeah yeah it, it, and it happens 
all the time. Then you go, oh no, that's frustrating. More often than not, the the players will score or win a match or something after you've been telling the coach all week that, he, that he's not ready to go and then he scores the winner. Um, so sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that's the way I like to do things and the way that we work here. It's We take risks and we push people to both physically and, and from a medical point of view. That's the way we like to work. We want to keep people right on the edge and uh, that matches in terms of our philosophy and the high press game that we like to play. But it's everything we do is on the edge. So we make them calculated judgments and we, the coaches are good. They listen to us majority of the time as much as coaches ever do. And then you, uh, you go from there. We have a good relationship. It's been four seasons as a, as a coaching staff altogether. So we make these decisions and you learn each other's ways of talking and you know certain times if the manager's not particularly happy, you think I'll bring that up a little bit later and not yeah. right now. <laughs> so, but it's... Go on, sorry. No, sorry. I was I was just going to say that when you say that, I, I think back to um, the All or Nothing documentaries with uh, Tottenham Hotspur and Jose Mourinho. He, he, you could tell he hates the physio. He absolutely despises him. <laughs> and every time he comes to him, he's so blunt and he's huffing and puffing. And as you said, they probably don't have. They, I mean, they probably don't have the best relationship. Maybe they're not showing the full extent of the relationship on camera, and that's fine. But from what we can see, Mourinho is very. And the, the physio, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but like I say, it's uh, even for me as a performance member of staff or, or head of performance, I can go and say, oh yeah, look, this guy's running really fast or he's, we're doing better or the GPS numbers are good or people are getting stronger in the gym and the physio will come in and say, oh yeah, he, he's injured. So it's, it's always them who are bringing that bad news and, mm-hmm. and if you get into the habit of being that person who brings the bad news in all the time, you're going to get them reactions. I think it's important. The way I like to do it is, like I say, you pick your moments, you kind of address it, you you be clear in your communication. I think a lot of younger physios, when they're coming in, will almost try and sugarcoat the news a little bit to get away with some of the negativity. And then you set yourself up for a, for even more, I think. If you kind of say, oh, he's injured, but it's it's not too bad, we're just waiting, then, then I think you're going to, if it comes back and it is bad, you look even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's better to just be clear and just say, look, this this is the extent of what we think now. Maybe they're going to, for example, get an MRI and then we know a little bit more then. So you're just clear and concise in, in how you're actually explaining it to the coaches and then you, you don't leave yourself open to any further criticism. Yeah. In Norway, it, this this may be a naive question, but is there more or less of an injury risk playing an Astro Tour in terms of Getting certain injuries. I mean, I've coached on Astro Tour before, 4G, not not anything more or less. But, you know, I'm not a physio and I've never worked in that line before. But has it, you know, does it increase your risk of injury, of certain injuries, or is it actually safer for players? Yeah. So what I've read is that uh, either surface grass or artificial is just as safe as the other. It's when you're changing surfaces, that's when people can get the problems. So what we right. notice here, we spend uh, four to six weeks in Spain every preseason, uh, just for weather reasons or whatever. But then when we come back onto the artificial, then we have problems. We have problems struggling with Achilles and just general feet pain mm-hmm. is something that we that we notice quite a lot of. Um, some of the studies that are coming out of the Norwegian league suggesting because we we have four or five, uh, three or four teams now in the top division who play on grass. 
So we play most of the games on artificial, we train on artificial, and then some of them are, are on grass. But I think the research that's coming out of the league has suggests that there's no greater risk. And for us, it's we don't try and use it as an excuse. We don't try and modify it. I, I know my time in England, a lot of the older players, because they were so used to on grass when there was bad conditions it, and they had to go on AstroTurf, they just wouldn't. And they said, oh, it's bad for my knees, it's bad for that. I, Especially I think the old 3G, you'd be rubbing Vaseline on your legs and everything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think there's almost a... Um, there's, there's like a mindset about it where you you think, oh no, it's it's more dangerous or, or it's not. It's the same with everything that we do here. We just try and take out any of that um, sort of excuses and it's everyone's treated the same if you're on grass, if you're on the pitch. It, it is what it is. If we, we know certain players struggle with Achilles, for example, so when we have that change over on grass, we'd be a little bit smart with them. They maybe yeah. don't do as much or they do a specified warm-up to, to lead into it, but it, it's not something that we've noticed a great deal of difference with here. I want to get a bit more personal now. How did you, I mean, going from obviously England to, or from Hull, I think it was, to to, to Norway, it's a, it's a big jump, you know. So how, how did that come about? How did you get the role, you know? How, how yeah, did so, all of that come together? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't really know. I've, I've been asked this a couple of times and I've had to think back on it. Um, so I was actually at Notts County at the time, so I'd left Hull to go to Notts County as, as their head physio. Um, and that was something that I thought, yeah, I'd been asked to go with, with one of the managers and it was it was brilliant. And it was, yeah, I'm going. They just made the playoffs. Fantastic news. The manager was then sacked before I got there during my notice period. Then there was the new manager who lasted six weeks with me. Then he was sacked. And then we were on to the third manager within three months. So things were quite traumatic. Then off the pitch, the club went into administration. So... I had a young son. My boy was six or seven months old. So we were told contracts would pretty much be up at the end of the year and we we see where we go. So we just wanted a little bit more st- stability. So we were having a look. I just looked on LinkedIn and I saw this job and I said to my wife, do you, do you fancy the article? And she was like, yeah, whatever. So we just put it in for it. Uh, and then the next day, actually, I, I got a phone call and asking that if I wanted to come the following day out to Norway to meet everyone. And I said, oh, it's it's a game day, so I can't come that day. But then I flew two days later. And then within two weeks after, I was there working and it was it all moved really quickly. My wife didn't even have a chance to come out and look at it before I had to make the decision for the family. So it was, uh, yeah, it went really quick. But what, what I think is important to sort of realize when you're making these sort of decisions is what is what you're looking for. For me, when I came out here, the I met the... The team manager who's like that director of football, I guess, is is his translation of the title and the doctor. And their vision was so clear on how they wanted to play, what the club expected on and off the pitch from, from my role. So from that first meeting, it was I was clear that I could come in and really impact what, what was happening. So for me, it felt like a, certainly from a working point of view, it was big challenges moving here with the language and stuff like this, but from a work point of view, I knew it was going to be a no-brainer and it was something that I could really help and really develop into. So that was a was important. Um, I don't know how much you know about Buda and, as a place, but it's up here in the Arctic Circle. It's cold. It's At the moment, we've got two hours of darkness. Uh, sorry, two hours of light a day, and then that'll soon be 24-hour darkness. And then it's the absolute opposite in the summer with 24-hour um, sunlight. So it's an interesting place. It can be remote. 
it's two flights here from England. It's the local Derby, I think it's a nine hour drive away or an hour and a half bus. So it's it's remote, but from us it it's worked really well for the last four years. So it's it's been a great experience. I don't think anyone really heard about the club until I'd say maybe twenty twenty. We wrote our first article on the website about I can't remember who wrote the article. I think they're gone now, but they wrote an article about uh, nuts inside and this this incredible team that were like you know the Manchester City of Norway. And I was like, I don't believe you. And then I watched. It. I was like, they're a good team. They play brilliant football. It was like a, really exciting. And then it kind of just progressed and progressed. And then obviously everyone remembers the the the, the, the Jose Mourinho hammering his biggest defeat in Europe in in history, which is like what a title to have for a, you know a club that with the fullest respect, not many people had heard of until then. Mm-hmm. To hand one of the greatest managers of all time his largest ever defeat is just mind-boggling. But when you moved over then, how how different was the the backroom staff or, or you know the hierarchy in the backroom staff of the club compared to what you had previously worked with, whether it be with Notts County or with Hull or even at, at Scarborough, I suppose? Mm. Yeah, it, uh... The Scandinavian model is quite flat, so there's there's no real sort of standout person who's that authority. You, you obviously have the head coach who makes the final decisions, but then everyone's opinions count, which for me was a, was something completely new. You kind of almost in England, you know, your place a little bit as a support team, and you you talk when you're and you're spoken to, and you say what you, you say what you need to. But out here, you're then getting your opinion is being asked on on everything and anything. And it's the same as we're a very small club, so the admin and the academy around call. It was a it was a bit of a culture shock at first where people are coming in and saying, Oh, have you tried doing this with the and I'm going, What? You're you're the admin guy. What what's your what's your opinion on this? But it's it's something that it's part of their culture and it's it's really nice in many ways that everyone does have that voice and everyone is valued. So it's it's a really different um, system and a different approach to back home. Certainly, did you did you look to make many changes to the medical and physical departments then when you took over, or was it pretty was the structure pretty set and watertight when you got there, so you didn't have to make that many changes? Or no, there, there was definitely some changes that that I wanted to do from from day one. What got in the way of that is that the team were winning every match. So I didn't want to make so many changes when you're winning. I think it's important when you go into a new environment to respect what's come before you and what what the staff that had come before me had done a great job and the boys were winning matches. So it was more about me to develop and adapt my style a little bit to match what was going on there and then just enhance slight different things. There has to be said that it's it's full credit to the club um, because we've really invested in what we do here. So when I first came, there was me plus a physical coach and that was it. Then there was a, a physical coach, one in the academy. Now we have me plus the physical coach plus two full-time physios within the first team, two full-time physios within the academy and two physical coaches. So the club have really seen the value in what we can offer. Mm-hmm. Um, what I try to sell to the club is that we're not going to pay the biggest wages in the world in terms of players, but we can, if we support build a supporting we can actually help keep players on the pitch and we can help them create a better availability which helps the coaches coach better and then we can win matches so the club got into what we do and we were trying to put a, a thread through from the first team all the way to the academy and kind of our philosophy and how we want to think forward and it's 
and it's progressed really nicely. And the, the club, like I say, full credit to them for for backing uh, what we believed in. Is data used, or is it important even to the to the process at at, at Glimp now with yourself and your your department and even the coaching staff, I suppose. Yeah, data for me is it's always important, um, but it's what you actually do with it. Mm. I think it's it's important to not just rely on the numbers, but for me, numbers are there to um, promote a question. So you might look at the GPS data and say, okay, our, our midfield has done twice as many sprint meters than normal, and then the question is why. And you go, okay, but he played on the right wing instead today, and then that's that's your answer. But I think it it should always be there to promote a question. And that, that's in everything. When we do our RPEs, when we do our daily wellness, if somebody's not slept good, we can go, why? Not necessarily go, oh, he didn't sleep good, so he can't train. You might go, why didn't you sleep good? Uh, my little boy was up crying or, or whatever. Oh, okay, fine. Or it's, I'm maybe not feeling well, but it's, it's important just to use that data to promote questions. And it's the same what we do with, with the coaching staff. If we're looking at certain drills, instead of me saying, oh, we need to modify everyone's training, Gone on. maybe this player needs to be modified a little bit but can we use this drill because then he doesn't have to do quite as much or can we have if it's a, a again a wide man can we have two right backs running the same drill so you can do the same and I think it's just small details just to incorporate that data into what you're doing but not be led by it not be reliant yeah. solely on that data um, in our time here I've, I've never pulled anybody out because they've done too much on the live data I think it's it's important to then use that data and not pull people up, but go, okay, what, what can we do more? How can we get them even better? And use that to enhance everything that you're doing. Well, that's what I was going to ask because I've heard stories at top Premier League clubs where they've, they've genuinely pulled people mm-hmm. from training. They've gone, no, you're done now. That's enough running, which is, um, well, again, like, I don't work in that, in that line. So I, I mean, I can't comment whether that's correct or not. But as you said there, it's maybe not, that productive and and again like I, I don't want to comment too much because it's not it's not mm. my my place but you know I just I think it's interesting that you know you, you yeah you brought that up and you and you don't know because there the might be reasons you only see that the it's news or is reported that they've pulled them out but that they might not tell you that they've had been struggling with hamstring pain or, or something so there's always a bigger picture to be considering as to why they pulled them out or it might be part of the bigger periodization model but I can only speak for, for what we do here and we use that live data as a way of we have targets that we want each player and each position to uh, match and then what we try and do is then if they haven't done that then we prescribe extra running or then we take them and do a little bit extra sort of focus on their positional work just to get them up to that sprint meters and often we find it's being used most on the non-starting players or the players who are playing a little bit and then in and out because that's the people who are missing out on that 90 minutes once or twice a week. And that's where we use our live data the most. Okay, how can we do little enhancements every day to make sure that your load is closer to what your starting player equivalent is? So that that's how we utilize the numbers and the data. And how about during pre-season? Because you've, you've obviously, during pre-season, you need to, I would imagine, get players up to a certain level of fitness, but then you need to, during the actual season, you have to kind of maintain that. How, how would your, your approach to pre-season and regular normal season change in terms of getting players up to fitness? We don't change very often. What, what, or we don't change very much. We follow a standard tactical periodization model. 
Um, and what we look to do in pre-season is get up to that model as, as soon as possible. So get up to in-season sort of um, metrics as, as quick as we can do. So we have a couple of weeks where we taper in and play internal matches, and then we just look to go our usual building match, usual building match, and we look to do that. We have quite a long pre-season in Norway. We have 12 weeks at times. Last year was, was different because we only had four weeks in between um, the Christmas break and then our first match against Celtic in the Conference League. Yeah. So that was a little bit more like a traditional sort of British or English-based Premier League pre-season. Um, but when you have 12 weeks, it's just for us, it's, it's about just building them foundations and getting up to what we do normally and building up into that tactical periodization. So giving the coaches enough time to actually work on them. We have a lot of changeover in the squad with the nature of where we are and players wanting to move on and go to bigger and better things, which is fantastic. But then that means we maybe have 10 new players every season where we have that period where we have to get them tactically and physically ready to go. Could I just home in on the sleep and part? You mentioned sleep in a few minutes ago. This is an area that I'm, I'm myself I'm really interested in. How do you how do you track the sleep first of all, and then secondly, why is it so important that a player gets a certain amount of sleep per night? Because we always you always hear you know you need to get seven and a half hours etc sleep a day to function, but realistically most people just 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 don't get that. Yeah, so what we've we've done a number of different things. So we look at just the daily wellness and and the RPEs where players are actually reporting on how well they slept or how well they didn't sleep. I think from when I first came out in 2019 that we lent on that a little bit more than now every every player's got a smartwatch which is then monitoring their own sleep um, and with like the advancements of the aurora rings and things now we're just actually telling players you need to go to sleep in an hour and turn your screens off i think that type of stuff is only going to make it easier for the player we actually now have a lot of players who are aware and go okay i only had six hours so i'm going to go to sleep a little bit earlier so what we try and do in anything is just keep it simple so we try and reduce screen time where we can. We try and talk to players about their actual strategy. Um, we look to uh, the club itself is really good at promoting meditation throughout the whole squad. We do we do a lot of it. So that's something that we sort of promote to the players, particularly after matches. You see a lot of the boys on the chart playing on the way home will all be sort of in the zone, as it were, meditating, which I think is a good way of switching off. Yeah. You, you can see the players who don't do that. You can see that they're the ones who report that they don't sleep good. Um, you, have, you have lifestyle choices in the way of gaming. I think it's, it's a... Mm-hmm. I, my age, I'm showing it a little bit, but I kind of just missed out on the... I think it was just the, the kids maybe a couple of years younger than me who got yeah. into the PlayStations a bit more. But So I, I don't really understand that sort of... Addiction, I will in a couple of years when, when my little boy's on them, I'm sure. But um, I think it's it's something that's part of their culture and part of their lifestyle. When when I grew up in and around sport, it, there was a lot more drinking and a lot more going out, which yeah. now seems to have almost gone from the, from the culture, certainly at the top level. But you then have this aspect of boys sitting up until three in the morning, playing PlayStation and drinking Coke. So I think it's it's just lifestyle choices and it's no better or no worse you, you don't know but it's just about educating the player on okay maybe if you want a game this is the right night to be doing that because you then have longer to sleep or can you do it different times and it's we try and just create that one-to-one sort of rapport with the players and understand how they sleep and what's important to them about sleep we are lucky i've mentioned the kids a couple of times in here 
as a squad, we only have two, uh, two players with kids, and that that makes an impact. Anyone who's a who's a father or mother will tell you that that <laughs> you can't control when they go to bed and when they wake up. So it's that's that's been a part of what we do and a part of our success. Now the squad's getting a little bit older. We've got a couple of players expecting kids, so I think that could then start to change a little bit, and they they can understand why you I'm. Sell, you just sell them, sell them before before it happens. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, they understand why I'm grumpy now. That, that yeah. <laughs> I remember, um, I think it was only recently on the overlap, Paul Skoll spoke to Gary Neville about the birth of his son, and he said. It was obviously people didn't realize at the time because he didn't really speak about things like that. But he was really struggling with sleep because he he had a son. I think his son was born with autism, so it was very difficult for him when he was when he was young, especially around. And Skulls was around his peaks; he was around thirty, etc. But he was really struggling with that. And I also remember, I think Louis Van Hal when he was at Manchester United brought in sleeping pods for players if they didn't get enough, you'd have to catch mm-hmm. up on it then, which is so interesting. As I said, I don't think sleep is spoken enough publicly in, in, in that the football kind of space so I'm always in, I was really interested when you brought it up Michael I'm aware we're coming up to time I just have one more thing to talk about Can only, I'm so bad at the time yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, um, the conversation has genuinely flown and I've, I've loved it but you, you wrote a post on LinkedIn recently about the World Cup which I found very interesting you said there was three simple rules uh, could you explain them to the listeners about the I, I, I wouldn't do it justice so I'd, I'd rather you explain to the listeners about the post itself and the content and actually the three simple rules you spoke about. Yeah, so I think, first of all, in terms of the, the World Cup, it's going to put a, a bit more pressure on everyone just to come up with some plans in terms of what the players are doing during this this period. We're here in Norway, we're a bit lucky because it's it's normal for us. It's just our off-season. It's a little bit longer than normal, but it, it's just our off-season. But I imagine teams in, in England and the rest of Europe are going to find it really difficult or they're going to have to come up with some strategies. And in that post, I think I, I put that it's it's really important and I think that could play a difference towards the end of the season, who gets that right and who doesn't. Um, a lot of the bigger clubs, obviously their, their players will be at the World Cup. So it's just the case of keeping the rest of the squad going, which I think is important. But maybe the teams who have not got so many players at the World Cup, can they buy that advantage by getting that right? So, Sort of what I talk about with any of the off-season programs or any of the program we do is just keep it simple. Try and find a way of of making it as simple as possible. If you give a player 100 exercises, he might do 10 of them. So just give him 10 good exercises that you want him to do and that sort of he buys into and, and understands. If you give it in terms of we, what we do is we send it all onto their phones because it's even something as simple as if they have to log into a program and look at it, Players just might not do it, and and it it's we can laugh and we can say like yeah, players. Oh, it's true. Are, you're right. Yeah, we no, all you're know right. it is. Yeah. And, it, and it's it for me instead of I went through a period as a young coach of getting angry that they're not doing it. I think it's just a couple of buttons, put a password in. But then it's why oh, get angry when you just play the game that they want to play and just send it onto their WhatsApp and they can see it as nice pictures and yeah. it's it's then just job done. Um, we like we look to utilize two se- uh, separate things in terms of freshness and physicalness, uh, physical preparation, but also using the time. You know what it's like any player throughout the season. If they played a lot of games or trained a lot, they will have niggles and they will have small complaints that they'll talk about. So it's what can we do in that period to sort of help them? I think that that helps from a mental aspect. If we go look, we know you've been struggling with an ankle or a hamstring. This 
program well. If you do this, when we tell you to, next year you probably won't struggle with it or you have a better chance of not struggling with it. That player knows that then you're, you're personal with him. You've actually got a plan for him himself. You know, you understand that maybe he hasn't been great or he hasn't been playing as well, but he's been struggling. But then you're, you're buying into him on a personal level. It's not just a group sort of send to everyone, do this and see you in January. It's uh, on a personal level where we can understand it. Um, and the last point I put was just be specific to the player and that's kind of what position. So there's no, for me, there's no point of centre-back doing the same running as a winger. It has to be specific. It has to be to their requirements. You have to look at age. If you've got a 33-year-old who's played every minute, does he need to do the same as a 19-year-old who's played nothing? So they're at different stages of their career and different developments. So I think that's important to look into that stage, uh, that age and uh, squad status. And does that play into the tactical periodization model then? Because it, 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 I'm not, I mean, I'm familiar enough with the model, but it's, it's something like, you know, it's specific to, not specific to players, but it has to do with the, the tactical role of the team almost in terms of you don't just have your squad doing jogs up and down. It's got to be game specific. Yeah, exactly. So it's game specific to, to our model. So the way we like to play is that high intensity, high press. So even in any training that we do, it's always looking to get that high press. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we do, even in terms of in the gym, anything that we put in place has to have that element in it. So it has to be, is this player going to make, is this program going to make him better at fulfilling what the coach wants him to? So in a, in any program that we do, that that all is always the main question. So any of the other members of staff who come to me and say, I've done this, it's, it's always, why? Is that going to make him better in the system? And if yeah. the answer is no, then we don't do it. And this off-season program, it's, it follows the same. So it's really, we've, we've worked quite hard on our side of that in terms of making sure that players are getting rid of any of them deals and coming back in shape, ready to, to train. We have uh, important conference league qualifiers when we get back sort of during our pre-season. So we need to make sure that we're ready to go. So, I think it's it's important and it's going to be really interesting to see how teams develop that and how they handle that over the next few weeks. Well, this is going to be a real, I, I would go so far as saying the first real test of such magnitude for coaching staffs and for fitness coaches and physios and everyone really at clubs because we've never had a mid-season World Cup. This is really going to be sink or swim time because mm. players might come back or they, they, they might, the fitness regime mightn't be good enough and then they, they all return and the season kicks off again. You're losing games left, right, and centre because you haven't managed to get everyone up to scratch. This is going to be a real, a real tester for coaching staffs, and it's 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 going to be interesting to see. And that's why I found your post so so, so interesting, Michael. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this chat. It absolutely flew in. I know again, I'm so bad at timekeeping. I, I can only apologise. But I wish I wish yourself and Butter Glimp the best of luck with the. I mean, congratulations as well on qualifying for the. the the knockout sort of this. Uh, thank knockout. you very much. Awesome. Yeah, perfect. No, it's been great talking. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thanks, Michael. All the best. Yeah, thank you. Speak soon.